0: From the K-Rob collection, this is Audio Antiques, Featuring programs from the golden age of American radio, I'm Ken Robinson. Before Martin Luther King Jr., there was Paul Robeson, who became an international activist for human rights and racial justice, just as radio was beginning to become popular. Robeson used his fame as a star football player and as a popular singer and actor to fight for equality, not only in the United States, but around the world you will hear Paul Robeson perform on The Magic Key Radio Show on NBC in 1936. After that, you'll hear his business manager. Paul's wife, Dr. Eslanda Robeson, was an anthropologist, author, actress, and civil rights activist who urged African Americans to be proud of their history. In 1949, she published her third book, American Argument, which was edited by fellow anthropologist Pearl Buck. In it, she spoke freely about society, politics, gender roles, and race relations. You'll hear Eslanda defend her book on the radio show, Author Meets the Critics on NBC in 1949.
1: Panoramic Lifestyle Clothing is your store for quality, distinctive t-shirts. These are eye-pleasing, Pre-shrunk cotton tees for men, women, and children. These are the best t-shirts
2: I've ever had. I love the designs and the way they fit. I recommend Panoramic to all my
1: friends.
3: Panoramic t-shirts are classy, not those cheap knockoffs. These are the real deal.
1: Get quality for less at plclothing.store.
4: Corporation of America presents The Magic Key. Magic Key Turns and the family of RCA join in presenting over the coast-to-coast NBC Blue Network an hour of entertainment featuring Paul Robeson, noted Negro singer and actor, in a broadcast from London, England. The lovely voice of Jane Froman, popular young singing star. Casper Iden, America's first swing harp player. Robert Wildhack, roving professor of stage screen and radio. John B. Kennedy in a special broadcast from the Roosevelt Raceway in Westbury, Long Island. And Frank Black and the NBC Concert Orchestra, who begin this afternoon's program with the ballet music from Guno's opera Faust. <laughs> People think of the harp as a sweetly lyrical instrument, a part of every symphony and concert orchestra, and associated with the music of Brahms, Beethoven, and Bach. Others think of the harp as the symbol of old Ireland, with its gay and rollicking dances. Caspar Reardon has still other ideas regarding the harp. This young American began playing the harp at the age of nine, and later studied under the great Carlos Salcedo While a member of the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra, Mr. Reardon, for his own amusement, played popular and blues numbers on his harp in the seclusion of his own studio. It wasn't long before he was playing occasional solo passages with dance orchestras. And then came the current swing craze to catapult this modest young harpist into prominence as the Swing Harpist. The magic key of RCA turns to Caspar Reardon. Casper <laughs> Reardon will play first Smoke gets in your eyes from Jerome Kearns Roberta as a fantasy solo for harp, following this with the popular swing tune It Ain't Right. Honeysuckle Rose serves Rear Riordan next as a theme for his remarkably different style of pop music. of the field from which Lindbergh took off for Paris in May 1927, workmen are putting the finishing touches to the greatest automobile racing plant on the eastern seaboard, the new Roosevelt Raceway. Here on Columbus Day, the most daring road race drivers from every part of the world will hurl their roaring motors over the four-mile track to contest for the new George Vanderbilt Cup and $60,000 in cash prizes. This afternoon, timekeepers are checking the speeds of drivers who are preparing for the qualifying test. That begin early next week. And the bug-shaped cars are being groomed for test runs over this remarkable four mile course that contains sixteen hazardous turns. John B. Kennedy, NBC News commentator, is at the Roosevelt Raceway where he'll describe this exciting racing plant and the breathtaking test run. The magic key of RCA turns to John B. Kennedy at the Roosevelt Raceway in Westbury, Long Island. You
5: better take yours, you know. Good afternoon, all. Fire a horse. The Vanderbilt Cup race,
6: 1908. The Vanderbilt Cup race today. Of course, they're not having the actual cup race today. Just rehearsing for it with some of the best known racers in the world, Dave Evans, Red Schaefer, Wilbur Shaw, tuning up their cars in tests on this dizzy Roseville racetrack. Here we stand on the spot where Colonel Lindbergh rose in his epical flight into the blue tomb of the skies to make the first solo hop across the Atlantic. And here's George Robertson, the winner of the Vanderbilt Cup 28 years ago, now in charge of the Roseville Raceway. You've got a right smart layout here, Miss Robertson. Or oh, call me George for short. Okay, George. Those blue sands are attractive even under a sky crammed with clouds. And the flags of the nation, flirting with the breeze, give life to the winding track. And does it wind? I'll feed you around it to the show you just how it winds. No thanks, George. I was around once, and my neck was twisted so much that my ears changed places. Tell me, what are those depressions over there, like wild sand traps on a golf course? Well, those are the repair pits, and over there, the refueling station. How long is the raceway? Four miles for the 400-mile race for the van cup and sixty thousand dollars on Columbus day. The entrance and have to go around that track 100 times. Seems to me they'll be pretty dizzy. Why, tell me. Are there no banks to this course? I can see the whole raceway with its basket towers and safety rails. But where are the banks? Oh, there are none to this raceway. That's why it calls for tremendous skill on the hairpin turns. How long is that straightaway before the main stand? Just three-quarters of a mile, the longest straightaway in the world. How fast can a modern racer make this course Well, Oh, you'll see. Here's Dave Evans ready to go and snap a forth at the time of giving him the green light. Okay, Dave, shoot! blue helmet like a streak in a red up car. He's up to 50 miles already. Watch him score. Look at him, he's reached that turn already. Yes, and he's taking it slowly, but the real race for 36 cars on the course, they'll be skidding around like a pack of skaters. I counted 16 of those turns this morning and got a scare at every one. He's up to 100 miles now. He's getting into the turns of the straightaway. Seems to me you need a bookkeeper to keep track of 100 laps for 400 miles. Oh, we have 150 men in the scoring and timing stands, and also the electric light to check the rounding of the app. Laps. Look, he's up to 120 miles already. And racing no dust whatever. That's because he's racing over a macadam track. And he's racing in good form. Ladies and gentlemen, the speaker is Red Schaefer, winner of the tricky Elgin Road Race, Elgin Road Race, rather, in 1933. Red, how does it feel to be a racer watching a racer? How does it feel to be a male carrier watching a walking race? They tell me, Red, that in all your years of racing, you've never been in an accident. Well, that's true. But i ought to knock wood well don't use my head red i think it must be pretty exciting to ride with an auto racer anywhere as a matter of fact i guess we have fewer accidents in traffic than all the other drivers because you see we're always anticipating trouble while ordinary drivers usually come from trouble suddenly you had an exciting time when you told behind a driver a year or two ago cracked up didn't you yes we call it towing when we ride behind another car to beat wind resistance funny thing Although not so funny, the driver of that car had a wooden leg. And when he cracked up, about all he broke was the wooden leg. Well, I hope there are no waste accidents on Columbus, Day. Eh? Gee whiz. Think of a guy having to make 1,600 turns. 16 to the left. Well, that shouldn't worry you, Red Schaefer, after going 4,000 miles in races at Indianapolis. A turn always worries a driver. Dave Evans is up to top speed on that shortest straightaway. We'll get him flashing through here in a minute. Well, that's speed, speed. You know, I've often wondered why we have this human mania for speed. Maybe it's because it's a gift of the angels and we want to get it in advance. Sometimes speed gets us and we become angels in advance. Well, speed is sport, always and everywhere. Here's another speed merchant, we'll be sure. Hey, Wallace. Yes, I was just noticing that uh, spot down at the end of this long stretch, George. Uh, it gives it's a it's a very good idea. It gives a fellow a chance to slip into that hayfield out there without getting hurt. That's the idea of it. Tell me, Mr. Shaw, you've been in a few bad spools yourself, haven't you? Uh, yes, I have. One at uh, Indianapolis it was very peculiar. Uh, my mechanic and I were wearing uh, checkered shirts, and the car that was right alongside of us when we went over the wall. Uh, later. Uh, we passed him in another car, and he he thought uh, rather it was a hallucination or something seeing us go over the first time. Oh, I see. Here is Dave coming along to the finish line. Here he comes. Why, it's thrilling enough to see a couple of cars tearing away. When 36 cars from America, France, Italy, and the Argentine and points southeast and west get going here, it'll be a spectacle. Well, I've climbed Pike's Peak in a race. This layout ought to be and look just as tough as it is. As you see, you've got to drive on this one, boy. Here comes Dave. Listen. Why, that car's going so fast. Look at it. Why, it even looks to me as though it stops before it starts. When will he be around this bend? He'll be around here almost any minute now. How is the timing? Uh, well, under four minutes. Pretty
7: good for a warm-up.
6: Well, how was the timing when you won the Vanderbilt Cup, George Robertson? Why, we thought 64 miles an hour was a ferocious speed. Well, we'll uh, let a lady have the last word, since David stopped over there for some reason or other. Mrs. Evans, how do you like to watch your husband hit those hairpin curves? Oh, it's always exciting, but I'm glad when
7: it's over. Why don't you go off, uh, go out for a spurt,
6: Mr. Kennedy? No, thanks, Mrs. Evans. I'll find some occupation just as exciting, but a bit safer.
7: What's that?
6: Oh, I think I'll apply for a job as track walker on a steamship line. The magic key of RCA returns you to Radio City.
4: Frank Black, director of the NBC Concert Orchestra, has woven into an unusual symphony the melodies of five famous songs of the rose. You will hear in Mr. Black's Symphony of Roses, the familiar melodies of Rose in the Bud, Jerome Kern's Wild Rose, Mighty Lack A Rose, Only a Rose from the operetta Vagabond King, and the famous Roses of Picardy. <laughs> curtain is rising on the greatest season of entertainment ever offered the American people. Broadway, Hollywood, and Radioland are working at top speed producing fine entertainment. New plays, new pictures, new radio programs are now being made at a total cost that will be close to half a billion dollars. A tremendous amount for a tremendous undertaking. Entertaining America. These great industries that supply your entertainment rely heavily upon the services of the Radio Corporation of America. One member of the family of RCA, the RCA manufacturing company makes the RCA photophone equipment used in the making and showing of sound motion pictures. This same division of RCA also manufactures the broadcasting equipment used by the nation's large radio stations. And to make sure your entertainment is perfectly received, RCA Victor offers the sensational development of the year in home receiving sets. The 1937 RCA Victor Magic Voice Radio with magic eye, magic brain, and metal tubes has been heralded as the greatest achievement in a decade of radio research. Another member of the family of RCA, the National Broadcasting Company, which is now completing its 10th year of leadership in radio broadcasting, brings you over its great red and blue networks, the nation's outstanding radio program. Executives in the entertainment business, like those of other industries, depend upon the swift direct services of RCA Communications for instantaneous contact between 47 different foreign countries and a dozen cities in the United States. Whether it be for entertainment or business, we suggest that, for every service in radio, use RCA. Unlocking a world of entertainment presented for your interest and pleasure by members of the family of RCA who, individually and collectively, offer you every service in radio. many all-American football players have sung in the great Albert Hall in London. Few, indeed, are the halfbacks and linesmen who have tackled successfully the dramatic role of Othello to win the acclaim of Broadway critics and playgoers. But such a man is Paul Robeson, an all-American football player, a four-letter man, and a Phi Beta Kappa from Rutgers University. He also pursued law at Columbia, and in 1923 began active law practice in New York City. But along with his excellent mind and fine physique, nature has also lavished upon Paul Robeson a glorious voice and the ability to act. In 1925, he appeared in concert in New York to give the first program of all Negro music ever given by any artist on any stage. Such then, and since then rather, he has become the foremost interpreter of the appealing music of his race and has scored dramatic triumphs in such productions as Emperor Jones, Black Boy... Porgy, the original production of Showboat and Othello. Mr. Robson is now in London, England, where he is being starred in a group of English films. The magic key of RCA turns to Paul Robeson in London, England.
2: I'm so happy to be here through the courtesy of the magic key, It does seem like magic when I can sing to the folks at home from such a great distance. My first song is a Negro folk song about Noah and the Ark, the old Ark from Ubering. A mover in a moverin a moverin no lot a mover in a moverin along no lot a mover in a mover in a mover in no mover in moverin along Wait a little while I'm going to tell you about the whole art the whole arts a mover in a mover in along do about the bear, him and Olaf. Olaf to mover in a mover in a long now. You'll a to mover in a mover in a mover in a mover in a moverin'. Olaf to mover in a 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 long. lock Olaf, you feel, lock she rock. lock she landed on the mountain top. Now the will ask mover in a mover in a mover in a mover in mover a mover in 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 long. The second is the Negro Ballad, the words of which remind one of our great Negro poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar, my Lindy Lou. Lindy, did you hear
5: that
2: mockingbird sing last night? Honey, he was singing so sweet. Goodbye. folk songs You to New York.
4: Our program continues from Radio City, headquarters of the family of RCAE, one of whose members, the National Broadcasting Company, has nearly completed its 10th year of leadership in broadcasting. This is the day of specialization. Careful study and diligent research into any problem rewards one with the right to being called an expert. Robert Wildhack realized this need for specialization and at an early age began to equip himself with a deep knowledge of a single subject, the phenomena of sound. Passing up the more common aspects of this field of endeavor, Professor Wildhack elected to concentrate his scholastic efforts upon the study of human sound. Years of research in field and laboratory, but chiefly in the field, combined with a unique faculty for reproducing these sounds, have rewarded him with international recognition as an authority on, among other things, snores, yawns, sighs, sneezes, laughs, and cries. This afternoon, Professor Wildhack will lecture on the subject for which he is perhaps most noted as an authority, that of snores. The magic key of RCA turns to Professor Robert Wildhack.
8: Ladies and gentlemen, dear scattered brains of the great radio classroom, of all the human sound phenomena, perhaps the most inhuman to other people are the snores. In discussing the human snore, or what we call in scientific terms soft palate calisthenics, I need scarcely point out that the basic snore is the common or Pullman car form (coughs) sounding like this. (coughs) Just an ordinary snore. (coughs) Snores are produced by two movements of the breath and so they may be classified under two general headings. Varied inspirational form and varied expirational form. We will take up the latter first. All of the expirational forms listed here are dependent upon type 1, which you've just heard, for their inspirational element. And so we have type 2A, the labial or ah poo variety. <laughs> 2B is the frictional, or non-lubricated form, like this. There is uh, quite a group of these squeak and whistle snores, and probably the most colorful and weird, albeit a common one, is type 2D, the Westinghouse air brake. (laughs) Three A is the sad or melancholy form, (laughs) (laughs) which often merges into three B, the conversational. Or troubled
5: conscience variety.
8: Now, leaving for the moment the expirationals for the inspirationals, we come upon number 4A, the light and thin, or blonde. Type of snore, which despite the name and the sound, is not necessarily produced by a pale, anemic young lady. Our in- extensive research, in fact, shows that the large, robust male will often produce this light and thin, whereas the frail, anemic girl may produce the larger and fuller or brunette variety (laughs) 4B. Then we have 4C, the ascending diapason. 4D, the descending (laughs) diapason. And 4E... The double diapason, first ascending and then descending, or vice versa, as the case may be, and doubtless, often is. Here's one of them. Next is any fancy combination or gymnastic variety produced by combining one of these inspirationals with one of the expirationals. We have forty two possible combinations already. Let's take a four uh, E and three B.
5: Uh. Number six,
8: the buck saw, sounds much the same in both directions. Uh, uh. And now, students, we approach the evident sign of the experienced and accomplished snorer. Type 7, the interrupted inspiration, or static lag variety. (laughs) Which extends itself, ultimately, and I think I may say, without fear of successful contradiction almost inevitably, into type 8, the acne of snoring. This is the auto-resuscitation or self-awakening
5: variety. (laughs) What was that?
8: Huh? There must have been something else. Huh? I never snore. Good night.
4: Winning one's way to the top here in America Traditionally includes years of hardship and struggle And it was in the traditional manner With perhaps a little extra hardship thrown in for good measure That Jane Froman rose to stardom While still a student at the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music Miss Froman had her first opportunity to appear in radio But fate dogged her footsteps And her career was interrupted by an emergency operation And when Paul Whiteman agreed to hear her sing, she broke her ankle on the way to keep the appointment. (laughs) Undaunted, however, she sang for Whiteman, got the job, and then went to the hospital. When motion picture opportunity came, she was caught again when she contracted pneumonia just before the scheduled start of her first picture. Then fate let her out, stopped tormenting her, and Jane Froman, for the first time, had clear sailing into the major stardom so richly deserved. The magic key of RCA turns to Jane Froman. <laughs> for her first song, Jane Froman has chosen the tune that has led all others in popularity for the past six years, Did I Remember. <laughs> was so popular for the past six years? Uh, Well, hardly that long. I meant the past six weeks. We next hear the lovely voice of Miss Froman as she sings La Bomba from the forthcoming musical picture the big broadcast of 1937. the RCA Victor Magic Voice. It is RCA Victor's latest and most sensational contribution to the science of radio. However, we want your personal answer to this question. We know it has proved itself in the laboratory with results that have amazed radio engineers and artists. But how does the RCA Victor Magic Voice radio appeal to you? Because we really want to know. One week from today, we are launching one of the greatest radio contests the country has ever known. For four consecutive weeks, beginning October 4th, that's next Sunday, 10,210 prizes worth $14,000 will be distributed each week to winners in the United States. Think of it. In four weeks, $56,000 worth of prizes will be given away free. This contest will be open only to residents of the United States. And here's how easy it is to win one of these prizes. Simply visit your RCA Victor dealer. Ask for a free demonstration of the new 1937 RCA Victor Magic Voice Radio. And then, simply tell us, in 25 words or less, why you like the RCA Victor Magic Voice Radio. Remember, you will not be judged on literary style. All we want is a simple statement that honestly expresses your opinion about the RCA Victor Magic Voice Radio. So, see your RCA Victor dealer at once and get an official entry blank. 10,210 weekly prizes, including many 1937 RCA Victor Magic Boys radios, will be given away absolutely free. All you have to do is to tell us, just as you would tell a friend, why you like the RCA Victor Magic Boys radio, the greatest achievement in radio made in the last decade. Remember, this contest starts one week from today. that Sunday, October 4th. Get your free demonstration at your RCA Victor dealers tomorrow, and be sure that your entry for the first week. RCA Victor Magic Boys Radio Contest reaches the judges no later than Saturday, October 10th. Concert orchestra was the Dance of the Buffoons by Rimsky-Korsakov. The next Magic Key program will be presented two weeks from today, Sunday, October 11th, and will not be heard next Sunday, as the Radio Corporation of America is yielding its time in order that you may hear the broadcast of the World Series baseball game. And may we suggest that one way to have a seat right off first base at the World Series games is to have your dealer install a new RCA Victor Magic Voice Radio this coming week. Ben Grauer and Milton Cross speaking for one member of the family of RCA, the National Broadcasting Company.
3: The following program was transcribed earlier for presentation at this time. Welcome
9: to The Author Meets the Critics, where today's guests are Pearl Buck and Islander Good Robson, collaborators on a new book called American Argument. In a moment, Mrs. Buck and Mrs. Robson will come to grips with their critics in a literary free-for-all. But first, meet the umpire on these programs, whose task today, heaven help him, is to keep the peace between four women. Your regular chairman, John K.M. McCaffrey.
10: Good afternoon, everyone. Pearl Buck, known all over the world for her novels of Chinese life, needs no introduction. Her new book, American Argument, is what she calls a talk book. She's written talk books before, one about Russia with a Russian woman, another about the German people with a German woman. American Argument is the report of a long conversation with a fellow American, Mrs. Paul Robeson. Now, I'm going to ask each of the participants in this talk book to tell you what their talk is about. And first, the author of The Good Earth and famous friend of China,
7: Pearl Buck. Well, as you know, I've lived most of my life away from America, my own country, And so when I came back, there was a great deal here which I didn't understand and which I couldn't live through because there wasn't time. So I thought I'd like to do a book about a country I didn't know well enough, which happened this time to be my own. And I chose an American whom I thought had experienced more of it and perhaps more successfully than perhaps any other American I could have chosen. I chose Eslander Robeson.
10: Well, now I would like to ask for the other side of the American argument, the wife of Paul Robeson, an author herself, as Landa Good-Robeson, to talk about American argument from her point of view.
11: Well, I have, as an American citizen, been thinking very long and deeply about the so-called American way of life, and I was very grateful for a chance to discuss it to talk about it and to think it through with someone else who was troubled about it and who could see it more or less in focus as I could because Pearl spent a great deal of her life in China then came back to America to live. I spent a great deal of my life in America and went abroad to live for 12 years. So having lived it and gone abroad, I got it in focus in one way and she having heard about it all her life and then come home to live, got it in focus in another way. Both of us, have had a great deal of experience with other ways of life, other values, other uh, systems of living. And uh, uh, so I think we were in a position to examine ours uh, affectionately and critically and in a family sort of way as members of our own family, this American uh, system.
10: Well, now you have heard... uh Two comments on the American argument from the authors of the American argument. And now let's give our critics a chance to join the argument with one of their own. First, the well known book reviewer, Virgilia Peterson.
12: I'm sorry. I'm sorry to say I find this kind of argument embarrassing. Both arguers are supremely convinced of their own and each other's superiority over the common run of women and men, too, I might add.
10: I resent that.
12: So do I. <laughs> They make a whole lot of tall, fancy statements that Americans don't do much about their children, that we Americans want to go to war and love war, and out of apathy, at least, are letting ourselves be drawn into war continually, that American men don't know how to love, that American women... I resent that, too. So do I. (laughs) That American women really like to be what Pearl Buck calls stalled cows, and that, according to Mrs. Robson, all the Russians want is to live and let live. Now, those are a number of points which I fail to agree with. I think perhaps women's scope in this country, after all, is pretty well illustrated by the fact that this book is being taken seriously. And I would like to suggest to Mrs. Robeson that a book like this would scarcely ever see the light of day in Russia. They say Americans talk too much and do too little. They said that in their book. I think this is a sample, perhaps, of talking too much.
10: Uh, And now, one of the best-known and most-loved figures in radio, whose own program is a mecca for all authors, Mary Margaret McBride.
13: Well, there's one thing certain, I'll never be able to keep up with Virginia Peterson today, but I would like to quote from American Argument for part of the reason why I hope that it'll be read by thousands and thousands of American men and women and taken seriously. First, S. Lander Robeson says... I want in America just what our Constitution and our Bill of Rights guarantee us. Pearl Buck says, There's nothing in America to which I do not feel I have the right if I want it and will work for it. And then Pearl Buck says again, closing her book, uh, uh, What Aslanda said about me applies to all Americans. She asked me if I were willing to give away a little of my precious individualism, if thereby all people could have more freedom to be themselves. And she asked me if I were willing to give up some of my privilege so that others could have more privilege. And she asked me if I were willing to give up some of my present security in order to make the world more secure for everybody. Well, aslanda says Pearl, the answer is yes. I am willing and I am ready. What do you make of that, Jill?
10: All right, Virgilia.
12: I don't want to be the most ill-mannered person in this group of majestically sweet and generous and tolerant people. (laughs) I would like, therefore, to say before I continue that in a book of so many generalizations, obviously there are a large number of generalizations with which I would be forced to agree. And, of course, on Mrs. Robeson's side, in the question of our treatment of minorities in this country, no intelligent and decent thinking person in this whole country or anywhere else in the world could help but agree with Mrs. Robson and feel exactly what both authors feel about our attitude toward minorities. But there is, for instance, Mrs. Buck's feminism. Throughout the entire book, there is a question of woman being handicapped by being a woman. Woman is submerged in America. Poor woman. Here are two women, she says, who have risen successfully, who have managed to overcome the terrible handicap of their sex and who, therefore, have achieved maturity and wisdom. And she intimates if only everyone else could achieve what they had achieved, this country would be perfectly run. I cannot agree that woman is submerged in this country, I'm afraid I feel that a little submersion might be frightfully healthy before we become a complete matriarchy.
10: Well, now, just before I go down for the third time, Miss Peterson... Uh,
12: <laughs> Hold on, I'll give you a straw. Uh-huh.
10: Uh, Miss McBride, Uh, What do you feel about the uh, submerged woman? Certainly no one has been submerging you recently as far as your...
13: (laughs) No one was to
12: submerge Mary
13: No, No, but before I I consider that, I'd just like to mention to Virgilia Peterson that while no right-thinking person, as she calls them, seem to worry, uh, seem to feel any other way than the book feels about minorities, there must be Millions of non right thinking people in our country. Don't you think it's important to take the subject up, Jill? Oh, indeed, I do. And there obviously
12: are a great many people who think wrong. But again, Mrs. Robeson indicates that by our education, we learn from the word go and even in our schools and from our teachers intolerance. Well, don't you think that's true in a great many cases? No, I don't. I've been to a great many schools and I have children who have been to a good many schools and I have never in my life, been anywhere near a teacher or an adult with any influence on anyone I knew who had that point of view.
13: Well, that sounds like a generalization
12: to me. Well, I have to answer a generalization with a generalization. In your it's history, the other side of in, the in, your,
13: in your reading of, uh, say, the Civil War, the war between the states, you mean to say there was never anything... Well, obviously anything
12: back there, and obviously now well, it goes on, hard, isn't but it? it isn't taught now, Mary Margaret.
13: What isn't? It isn't
12: taught. No, history is taught, but it isn't taught to feel scorn and contempt for minorities. That rises up from word of mouth, from ignorant sources, and it isn't influence upon children from other children who get it from their homes. But I don't believe that it's a principle in this country to teach the superiority of the white person or of the Anglo-Saxon Protestant. I don't believe it. It's Mm -hmm. not a principle. It's a horrible accident against which perhaps the schools don't do enough.
10: Mary Margaret?
13: Well, she probably went to school later than I did.
11: (laughs) Mary Margaret? Only
13: about two years, perhaps. But perhaps not for as long. It's for the submerged woman, John McCaffrey, in in whom you're interested.
10: No, I have no particular interest in her. I don't want to dive after my women, uh, uh,
13: (laughs) Mary Margaret. Well, I think the only point that Pearl Buck and and Mrs. Robson make is that uh, that too often our women think that you can't carry two things at one time, that you couldn't be a good wife and mother and still have a great many interests outside the home. I think these women who've managed to do it feel that that it ought to be done by more women, and I think so, too.
10: Well, I I think now that it's time, perhaps, to have some of these uh, arguments which uh, Miss Peterson has brought up uh, answered by the authors themselves. We've heard Mary Margaret give her opinions on it. Now I'd like to hear Pearl Buck and Islanda Robeson uh, give their opinions on Miss Peterson's opinions. Uh, well, may first of I all, do the yes, prejudice first? Ms. Because
11: Bro- uh, the prejudice is very close to me. Uh, I understand exactly what Miss Peterson means when she says that um, that prejudice is not taught in the schools, but I think perhaps if I explained to her what I meant, she might agree with me that... It is a fact that prejudice is not inherent. It's not innate. It's not inherited. It doesn't exist when a child is born. And yet the children grow up we're accumulating a great deal of prejudice. Now, this comes from teaching, whether it's by the community, by the behavior of their elders in the home or in the schools, I don't know. But definitely, that is part of education. And so, a prejudice is educated into the child, and he gets it. It happens. And this, I regret. This, I think, is a very serious thing in this country. It's one of of the very important divisions within our ranks, and I think it's a great weakness.
10: Well, Mrs. Robson, as the immoderator on this show, uh, may I come in here and say that I found your point of view on this very question somewhat old-fashioned, in that I feel that the time is perhaps past when the kind of uh, muckraking approach which you are taking toward prejudice is particularly constructive, because although we realize that there is a shame of prejudice in our country, uh, it has become almost a cliché with liberals to say, oh, the South, lynchings and to condemn it and wrap it up into that little package which I believe that you are doing and it seems to me that there is a much more important thing to do as far as prejudice is concerned and that is to cooperate with the very real forces and particularly in the South in our own country which are cooperating to get rid of prejudice we have found in southern states for instance Negroes voting in primaries and in national elections for the first time we have papers like the, the the journal in Atlanta once again cooperating and saying, yes, we must give these people their rights as full first-class citizens. It seems to me merely to be an Ida M. Tarbell, as far as prejudice is concerned now, is a little old hat. It seems to me that to wrap it up into these old clichés of what has happened, without saying what we must do is cooperate with the people who want to change it, as I say, is a little old-fashioned.
12: Well, Mrs. Robeson does say that there are people in the South who don't feel that way anymore, but she claims that they're afraid to speak.
10: Ah, but they're not afraid to speak because we, all we have to do is read the papers in the South today to find that there is a rising tide. We can find the people who are opposing the president's civil rights program, certainly, but there are people in the South who are supporting it. And all you have to do is look at the vote of the southern states in the last election where a, a president ran on a, on a clear-cut civil rights program and the Dixiecrats didn't carry very many states.
11: I quite agree, and I think the only difference between us is that you are not on the receiving end. It's all very well to talk about being old-fashioned and being very modern and very generous about um, uh, giving uh, credit where credit's due. This I agree with, and this I do. But it's still important to me that I can go down south and be lynched tomorrow if I'm black and don't say, yes, they're in the right place. This, I think, is a very serious uh, thing. And I think the only difference, as I say, is I am it in this game of tag, and you are not, so you can afford to be very modern and very generous.
10: Uh, But I think perhaps both of us could afford to try to do something about it, which is the important thing.
11: That's right. So we Uh, wrote a book. Mrs. Buck. (laughs) uh, uh, (laughs) Pro Buck.
7: Well, you know me, and you know I have no place on this program, whatever, because I hate uh, argument and fighting. And that's why the only reason I consented to be here is because, as is very good at argument and I'm not. But I suppose I might go back. I like to have my say, you understand, but I've been brought up to be equally interested in the points of view of those who differ, and that doesn't make a good fighting program, as far as I'm concerned.
10: Oh, we'll take care of that. Well, I,
12: I think we have taken would. care of it enough because um, we've taken up the point that Mrs. Robeson stands for most of all, and un- unfortunately for the argument, all of us are more or less agreed on Mrs. Robson's point. But Mrs. Buck makes some th- statements which, to me, belong in the Department of Wild Remarks. She makes some very fancy generalizations about marriage and men's and women's relations. Now, she also makes statements about our interest in children... And she sums the whole thing up by the fact that we're not interested in human relations. And then she quaintly says we've installed public relations to take the place of human relations. Well, now... I
10: Pearl Buck, you what, do you, what about this I indictment? I think she's though?
7: interesting. <laughs>
12: <laughs> That's too generous, Pearl Buck. Please don't be generous with me. I might have to turn on generosity, well, and that, I haven't any.
7: <laughs> take those things up one by one, well, I Well, I think she's probably right from how she looks at it. But um, about women, I don't think there's anything in our book which says that women are submerged in America. I oh, took the very
12: word, Bill Buck.
7: I took the very word yes. when "submerged" the, the, the out of the book. Women. I mm. love that word. The word is there, but we didn't say that women, other people submerged women. We said women submerged themselves. That's different. She said it was the fault of women.
1: She
13: was calling on women, trying... She said women could have anything they wanted in this country. And as far as as I can see, you have it. it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, she didn't mean fur coats
12: and stuff that you all are talking about. No, no, I mean women's clubs and culture and... Well, we're not
11: talking about women's clubs. We're talking about women as people. And considering that women are half the population of this country and half the population of the earth, they don't have enough participation in the government and in industry and the things that affect women, affect our lives, affect our our children. I think anyone would admit that.
12: Mrs. Robson, have you been in the subway in the rush hour?
11: That doesn't uh, manage our affairs from a, no. an international and a national point of view. That's a, uh, an incident in, in life. But do I you do know think the figure of how many women, women control the,
10: the wealth of America, Mrs.
11: Robson? I beg your pardon?
10: The wealth of America is controlled primarily by women? It's in their hands.
11: Well, I'm not. I don't think they're don't controlling think, it very well. I'm well sorry they may not say. be
10: doing very well, but they've got it and they've got the power. Now you claim that they don't. They don't have enough influence. Well, in our I affairs. think they
11: have it, as Pearl says, but they don't manage it. I think the men do the managing. Well, but if I
10: had a million dollars, I'd turn it over to somebody else to manage it, just so I got the income from it. That's the important thing.
11: Well, that's all right, too, except that if men allowed women to be in the management business, for instance, to be in government and so on, perhaps we might get along a little better.
10: We had a secretary of labor, I believe, uh, Frances Perkins, wasn't it?
11: I think she was a good
12: one.
10: Ah, that's an interesting point of view.
11: Yes.
12: Well, Mm -hmm. I think that's a fair enough point of view. i got to go along with Mrs. Robson on that. There's a thing that Pearl Buck says that I agree with, but... The philosophical background seems to me to be odd. She talks about too much competition in this country and, and that we are too competitive. I agree with that. I think nowhere in the world is the strain of competition for survival so bitter as it is in the United States. But then Pearl Buck assumes something, and later on that applies to their discussion of freedom and their discussion of communism. She assumes that we're all equal. I think we're all equal, quite obviously, in the eyes of the Lord. And we all ought to have equal opportunity. But who is to say that men and women are born equal? Are we born equal when there's a Shakespeare in one place and someone in an institution who has not been able to learn to read and write in another through no fault of either of them? There isn't any equality in humanity. All you can give them is a chance to do what they can with what they've got. And when she goes on into the discussion of Russia and into the discussion where Mrs. Robson says that all Russia wants is time and peace to have socialism in one state and live and let live, and we should live and let live too and let poor Russia alone. When do you read the papers, Mrs. Robson? What about the countries behind the Iron Curtain? Are they being allowed to live and let live? Is well, you Poland, know everything England about advanced? the things
11: behind the so-called Iron Curtain. If all that news comes out and all of it bad, I don't think the curtain is so iron. But, um... Uh, as far as let's go back, I would like very much to go back to the children because both Pearl and I have children and we're terribly interested in that. I've got that.
12: a couple too, in spite of being Miss Peterson, and I bet Miss McBride... I don't know how I, I, I managed That's fine. So perhaps. I don't know how
10: will... I managed it being a man, but I have children too. <laughs>
11: Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. Well, um, I would like to go back to that business of children because um, I think it's important. Children are the future, of course and i think that we haven't done a particularly good job on our children in this country i say this because um in a country which is enormously wealthy enormously powerful enormously uh, industrially um effective we have perhaps the highest delinquency rate in the world i think that is really a challenge to the way we handle our children I agree that the delinquency
12: rate is a shock and a scandal, but I uh, maintain in the same way that we have often been said to have more neurotically disturbed men in our army than any other armies, that other countries do not keep statistics of their juvenile delinquents, of their mentally deficient and mentally disturbed uh, people drafted into their armies. And we have a very large population and we take a great deal of trouble with statistics and we advertise these numbers.
11: I wouldn't dare to make the generalization that we have more than anywhere else in the world. Well, our, our um, uh, authorities on these things say this and I take their word for it. I, I'm a scientist and I have to rely would on you it. You right say, now, so
10: would you authority. say seriously, Mrs. Robson, that you believe that there are more delinquent children in the United States than in the bombed cities of Germany, in a Europe which has been torn and ravaged by war, where there are hundreds of thousands of homeless children wandering just loose? And you would say that there were more delinquents here in America because we define delinquency within the forms of a fairly Peaceful civilization?
11: No, that I seems wouldn't.
10: to be the most superficial kind of generalization.
11: But, Mr. McCaffrey, just a minute—I didn't say that at all. When you come to the effects of a war, that's another story. We have to rearrange our statistics. But I—I I can take up to the war before there was bombing, and I can say this. At least so our authorities say. I didn't go out there and count them. But on our prison uh, records, our uh, statistics on these matters, you have only to consult the facts. You'll find that... Would the you say,
10: Mrs. Robeson, that there were more people in prisons in the United States than there are in Russia, including the slave labor camps and the political prisoners? Uh,
11: this I don't know. Uh, if you want to get me on that ground, you have to get a little more solid ground, and then you well, we will... Well, David uh, Dolan's
10: <laughs> book on the uh, Soviet labor camps, you probably are familiar with, and that gives
12: well, you a good
11: deal. Well, let's discuss our out. book. Let's, let's uh-huh. do it. I want to get one. you on the ground
12: of one thing for a woman for whom I have such deep respect as I really have for you, and I know that you Thanks. are an honest and sincere and fine and intelligent woman. How can you sit up there and say that liquidation of the people who disagree in a country is a means of achieving the right end in government? How can you defend Russia's principle of getting rid of, by any means, however foul, the people who set themselves against the government, and then you collaborate on a book in which you criticize our government and our methods and our foreign policy, and you are glad that we are free here to be able to do that, and at the same time, you are defending a system where such a thing would be impossible and where you yourself would not only be in Siberia, but probably in limbo by this time.
11: Well, I have been in Russia, and let's get through with this right away, because, you know, I'm very tired of listening to programs about something else and ending up on Russia. I think much too much of this is done, and it's nonsense. So let's um, uh, get on with this and get through with it. I, I do approve of liquidation up to this point and i wish you would understand this i think that a man like franco should have been liquidated i would approve of that i think a man like hitler should have been liquidated i approve of that if there is no other way to stop him to uh, get to to uh, stop the uh, terrific Uh, destruction that such a person will let loose. But the principle of liquidation leaves it
12: to the judgment of anyone to decide who should be liquidated, supposing you had a Hitler at the head of this government who wanted to liquidate a Roosevelt and who had swayed everybody to believe that Roosevelt was a danger.
11: Well, I'll say just one more thing about this liquidation. When you consider, of course, all of this comes from a background of your being free white in 21 and me being black, uh, uh, literally, uh, figuratively speaking, and a member of a minority. And I come from a race where 150 million people were liquidated in the stra- slave trade. That, too, was liquidation, you know, only another kind. So I have a different approach to liquidation, and with that, I'll just leave it there and take it over to Pearl. Well, suppose, between,
7: Can I say just one thing here? I suppose that this was the thing upon me. Which, as Landa and I, disagreed most violently, wasn't it, es Yes, Landa? it was. We had a real argument on this. It was often But I suppose, though. well, perhaps we are She's polite She's a polite people. woman,
11: uh, which I think I is admired. no uh, discredit to her.
7: Well, I can't help it. I was brought up in China.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
11: <laughs>
7: which is a serious commentary on American life
11: and manners. Well, um.
7: I like America very much. But uh, what I really started to say was that S.N. and I did disagree on uh, li- this business of liquidation. But I suppose now that I've been thinking about it since, uh, that, and also got some letters from Japan, quite a lot of Japanese people, who spoke of our liquidating their war criminals. Now, I can quite see, I understand why we did that, but they used that word too. And uh, I suppose people in Germany would say that we liquidated some people too. And I think maybe Aslanda has something when she says that it really depends on which side you're standing on or just what this liquidation is. All the same, Aslanda, I didn't agree with you. You remember that, don't you?
11: I remember that distinctly. And I do remember that we discussed the Franco business and all the people who were liquidated in Spain, but nobody mentions them at all. Uh, there's been a lot of liquidation, but curiously enough, when you come to the Russian thing, uh, everybody becomes wild and frightened and hysterical, and uh, so it doesn't alarm me at all. Uh, anyway, we don't know anything Well, I about lived
12: it. right in the middle of it until Hitler kicked me out, and I saw the liquidation going on, and I'm not accusing just Russia. I disagree with all liquidation of all people just
11: because other people fear them. I think we would simply have to triumph in some other way. I think so, too, and I hope so, but until we do, uh, uh, something will have to be done about it, and I'm for the lesser liquidation.
12: There's one thing I would like to say simply so as not to be the sourest uh, woman in this majestic group, and that is that... Y- you have a statement somewhere that your son told you once, I, you do your homework. I love that, and I would like to say that I think, after all, in spite of some of the windy generalizations, both of you have done your
11: homework. Well, thank you very much. That's truly a compliment.
10: Well, now, uh, Mrs. Buck, uh, Miss Buck, I'm sorry, uh, in uh, having this American argument with Aslanda good Robson, was the only place where you had a hot argument on the subject of liquidation as you were writing this book?
7: I should say that was the place where we disagreed most absolutely, because I don't believe in killing anybody. That's uh, perhaps extreme from an American point of view. But I think you can lock people up or you can segregate them into jails. don't like to use that word, segregate, but I mean put them in jails if they're bad. But uh, I don't believe in killing, you see, because I think when you kill somebody in war... Are in peace, and I call war killing just the same, you do something to yourself. And that's what's terrible about killing. It isn't the person that's killed that has the bad effects. He just quits, that's all. But it's the person that does it that suffers.
10: I I think that that's very true. And I think one of the important things about American argument, and even the kind of argument we've been having here, is that in America and under a democracy, any kind of a democracy, whether it flourishes here or elsewhere, that what we are primarily concerned with is the principles which govern our conduct. It is not whether or not we put someone in jail, whether we repress or inhibit certain kinds of actions. The important thing to us as Americans and as Democrats is that we find a modus operandi, a way to work, a way to do it with equality and fairness and justice to all men. It is not the act itself, because we know from children, children need discipline, children need to be controlled and sustained at times, and it's only that we do it with the interest of the child, as, w- as well as we must also do it in the best interest of the individual, according to a set of principles which are workable. And I'm sorry now that time's up for both our authors and their critics, and here is your announcer to tell you what lies ahead on the program.
9: Next week, our guest author will be Robert St. John, the famous foreign correspondent and author. His new book, Shalom Means Peace, is a report on the new nation of Israel. Be sure to be with us next Sunday when Mr. St. John meets his critics face to face. And now back to John McCaffrey.
10: Before closing, I'd like to thank Pearl Buck and Mrs. Robeson for coming here today to discuss their new book, American Argument. And to thank you, Miss McBride and Miss Peterson, for joining us, this is John McCaffrey saying good afternoon, for the author meets the critics.
9: Meets the Critics, produced by Martin Stone and directed by Lee Jones. This is Mel Brand speaking.
3: For several weeks, The Author Meets the Critics has been campaigning for new books for disabled veterans. Today, we'd like to speak of a very special group of these men in Northport Hospital, the group of the emotionally disturbed. Perhaps even more than physically handicapped men, the emotionally ill need the help that comes from new ideas and books. But what kind of books should they be? This is the real challenge to the librarian of Northport Hospital. Taste varies among these veterans as much as it varies everywhere. Some men have vocational interests carried over from before the war. A farmer or a mechanic will find not only distraction, but a real boost to morale and health in technical books on the jobs which they plan to take up again. Others have old hobbies, motorboats, stamp collecting, photography, and books on these subjects help to restore their joy in life. But almost all the veterans of World War II like to keep up with current fiction. If you've just found a new book which roused your own interest, why not send it to the veterans at Northport Hospital? Northport, Long Island, New York. The preceding program was transcribed and came to you from our WNBC studios in Radio City, New
1: York. With our crazy economy, you've got to save money any way you can, and that includes your cell phone bill. Switch over to Mint Mobile and get talk, data, and text for as little as $15 a month. It's so easy. Pick the plan that's best for you and Mint will send you a SIM card. Insert it into your phone and start saving. You can even keep your old number. Slash your cell phone bill today with Mint Mobile at krobcollection.com.
0: From the K-Rob Collection, this has been Audio Antiques, featuring classic shows from the golden age of American radio. This podcast emanates from Anchor.fm and can be heard on Apple Podcasts, iHeart, Spotify, Castbox, Podcast Attic, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and others. You can contact us at audioantiques at krobcollection.com. Our theme music is by hbeats330 at gmail.com. I'm Ken Robinson thanking our many listeners in the United States, the United Kingdom, Australia, India, Germany, Ireland, Canada, Ukraine, Bhutan, Spain, Poland, the Netherlands, France, and 73 other nations around the world. Glad to have you with us.